That's great. Thank you for taking time to do that with me. Uh, We are in the middle of a series, as Jonathan alluded to just a minute ago, gearing up for nominations of officers in our church, the officers of elder and deacon. So we've been talking about elders for a couple of weeks, and the next week we're going to spend a week talking about deacons. Last week we really spent a lot of time talking about what elders do. And if I could, I just want to give you this analogy to maybe kind of, because there's still some, I'm not really sure what what all this stuff is, and so we'll... um, We'll kind of talk about this, but if you think about Israel, in Israel, the Old Testament covenant people of God, there really were three kind of leadership streams. There were prophets, there were priests, and there were kings. And so the prophets uh, brought the word of God to the people. Uh, they were the pastoral types. The king, obviously, was the one who administrated the, the corporate life, the civic life of the people of Israel. And then the, the priests were those who, who served the spiritual needs of the people and who cared for even the sick and, and the poor and those sorts of things. When Jesus came, uh, many of the theologies that we kind of are synced, you know, synced with in our theological tradition, many people saw him fulfilling each of those offices. And so we talk about the, the, the three offices of, of Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. He is prophet. He brought the word of God to us. He is a king. He rules over the church. And he is a priest. And he gave his own life as a sacrifice for sins and is now that one who cares for the poor. In the needy in our midst. And so it makes sense that in his absence that he would establish permanently the offices of prophet, priest, and king in his church. And he's done just that. The pastor-teacher types are kind of the continuation, if you would, of the prophetic office. The ones that bring the word of God to the people. <clears throat> excuse me, to the people of God. What we call ruling elders, which is what we're talking about this morning, are those who do just that. Who rule. They are kind of the continuation of the, the kingly office of Christ or the mediation of the kingly office of Christ in the church. So they are those who rule and administrate in the name of Jesus and oversee the spiritual lives of the people. And then the office of deacon, which is the one who's given the responsibility of caring for the sick and the poor and those sorts of things, is the continuation or the mediation of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. Do you see how those things line up? And so we're talking about elders this morning. And we're just going to ask this question as we think of those who are called to leadership, to rule and administrate, over the people of God, uh, we want to. We talked last week about what that looks like, what they do. This morning, we want to talk a little bit about who then is qualified to do this job, who can be an elder, and we want to do that by looking at First Corinthians 13 and kind of a general overlay of what Paul says about the, the centrality of character, the, the the importance of character at the heart of the church and the church leadership, and then specifically apply that to the list of qualifications that Paul. Uh, mentions later in First Timothy chapter 3. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, you're welcome to do that. If not, don't worry, it's on the screen behind me. It's also printed for you in your worship folder. So let's read together these just two really great passages. Beginning in First Corinthians 13. <clears throat> if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I Have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. For love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And then Paul goes on to write about the elders of the church. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be 
above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectful, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. This is God's word. Okay? Uh, I know we're, we're really running behind, and so I'm going to try to... Try to be as succinct as possible, but still stick with the plan and get through what we need to get through. And I want you to see three things uh, from this passage. First, the importance of character in the church and church leadership. Secondly, then the description of the character that is important, for, especially for church leadership. And then thirdly, how do you get it? So why is it important? What does it look like? And how do you get it? Those three things from these two passages. Let's work through it together, okay? Let's start with just this. Let's talk about what's really important to Jesus, what should be true of all the church and especially of church leaders. First Corinthians 13, okay? What matters in Christianity, according to these verses, is not talent or virtue, not talent or moral commitment, but a heart that's been supernaturally changed by God's grace. And so we need to talk about each of those first, okay? Each of those in turn. But first, what Paul wants us to see from this passage is that we should not mistake a supernaturally changed heart for talent, so in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, look there in verse 1 and 2, he says you can have tremendous gifts. You can speak in the tongues of men and angels. That refers to the, the supernatural gift of tongues that was active in the church. Uh, he says you can have prophetic powers, understanding all mysteries and all knowledge. And that refers to, to um, studying the word of God and communicating it. And so it really has to do with you know teaching and communication and even the prophetic kind of office that was that that still is active in the preaching office of the church so you can be a great preacher you can be a great communicator of the scriptures or he says you can have all faith so as to remove mountains and that's just that's a leadership gift it means that you 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 have the ability to be really influential and to really move people along toward a goal and get a lot of things done you can be really talented in all of these different ways paul says but you can do it in such a way that you still don't have love. You see that? I can speak, and if I do this, and if I have prophetic powers, and if I have all faith, but have not love. And then Paul goes on to define love. Love is patience, it's kindness, it's, it's not envying or boasting. So what Paul's saying is, is don't mistake talent for a supernaturally changed heart, because there are plenty of people who show incredible talent, who are still impatient and mean, and boastful, and rude, and arrogant. And Paul's saying that counts for nothing. You see, he's describing the Corinthians. Corinth in the ancient world is very similar to New York City, let's say, in our world. And in the sense that New York City, Mike, you're going to learn this probably, New York City is the place where uh, New York City is, a, is a, just a conglomeration of incredibly talented, uh, outgoing, ambitious, strong people who've all come in one place to make it. And Corinth was very similar. It was a city, a trade city, where all of the most talented and the most prosperous and the most influential, the most, you know, the, just the, the really high ups came together to try to make it. And so what Paul is saying is Paul is describing the church that he's writing to. He's saying a lot of you have great gifts and you're very talented, but you're rude. <laughs> You're arrogant and you're impatient. And that counts for nothing. Now, apply it to leadership. I mean, you all have been around 
leaders who are incredibly talented, incredibly gifted, they can draw a crowd. We say, you know, man, he's anointed. They're powerfully gifted so that they affect people, but they're irritable and impatient and condescending and rude and demanding. And think about it. In our culture, what really counts in our culture? You know what counts? What counts is, is are you smart? Are you beautiful? You know, are you the best? Can you produce? So what if you have a few character flaws? I mean, it's no big deal. What can you get done? See, as a culture, we're willing to overlook character for talent. Or worse, we're prone to mistake talent for character. And Paul completely reverses it. He says, if you're talented, if you're brilliant and successful, but in your heart you're full of anger and pride and insecurity and selfishness, then you're nothing. You're nothing. That's of no value to God at all. That doesn't count. Think about what Paul's saying there. He's saying, he's saying, it's possible. It's possible to have little grace in your heart and yet to be very successful in life or in ministry, even in ministry. And I remember, I'm reminded of the story, or actually the teaching in the um, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 where Jesus says, on the day of judgment, many are going to come and they're going to say, Lord, did we not cast out demons? Did we not do powerful works in your name? And he's going to say, I never knew you. It's possible to be talented and to do lots of great things and yet to count for nothing. So it's not enough to be talented because you can be talented and you can be successful and even experience the power of God at work in your life or your ministry and spiritually be nothing. Paul says, don't look at that stuff and conclude God's with me. And I would say to you, as a church, don't get enamored with a leader's gifts and mistake his talent for character. They're two different things. Talent's not enough. But then secondly, Paul goes on and says, don't mistake a supernaturally changed heart for a morally committed heart either. And look what he does in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 13. He moves from a talent list to a virtue list. He begins to describe a morally virtuous person. Somebody who, in verse 3, is willing to give all they possess to the poor and even willing to die for the faith. I mean, that's commitment. He's describing somebody who's incredibly committed. And Paul's saying that a supernaturally changed heart will lead to a morally committed life, but you can live a morally committed life without a supernaturally changed heart. It's easy to mistake one for the other. And the issue, I think, at the end of the day in this is why. It's your heart motivation. In Paul's metaphor, he says in verse 1, if I do this without love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And that is a clear reference to the pagan worship of the day, where the whole idea behind paganism that day And even now in places like India and other places in the world is you go to the temples where they worship. And a lot of times, you know, the priests will be banging gongs or clanging cymbals. And I had this experience in India uh, a number of years ago where I got woken up by the by the neighborhood temple outside my window at the hotel. And they're just making all this racket. And so I went out onto the street and said, what are they doing? And they told me they're trying to wake the gods up. They're waking the gods up. And in many ways, Paul's saying you can do these things. You can live a morally committed life in an attempt to try to get God's attention, to try to wake him up. It's possible to obey the Ten Commandments and follow all the rules and to do it to try to get God's approval, to get his attention, to wake him up. And Paul says, if you're doing that, then when you give your money away, you're doing it for the sake of yourself. You're not doing it for the sake of the people you're helping. You're not doing it for God and his glory. You're doing it for your own sake, to build a spiritual resume, to get applause. You're not doing it for love, for God or for other people. It's all about you. You can give away everything you own and even die for the faith and do it without love, Paul says. Do not be motivated by love. 
but to be motivated by selfishness. And you'll be doing it to count. You'll be doing it to try to count, to count, to, to, to earn the approval and the applause of other people, to wake God up and make him look at you. And the irony is if you do these things to try to count, it counts for nothing. And the way you know this is true of you, Paul says, is that even if you were there every time the church door is open and if you serve on committees and you volunteer downtown at the mission and so on and so on and so on, but, but you're still rude and impatient or you have a critical spirit or you're full of pride or you brag about your commitment to other people or you're vain or you really care too much about what other people think of you or you're full of self-pity and self-absorption and insecurity and anxiety, that underneath, you know, underneath your moral commitments, all that stuff... See, it's not enough to be talented. It's not enough to be morally committed. We need new hearts. We need hearts supernaturally changed by God's Spirit. And what's important in the church, what we should strive for, what we should value, is character. Heart character. Not talent. And not moral commitment, but love. To have hearts that have been supernaturally changed through faith in Jesus Christ, that have been drained of all our self-interest and pride. What we should value, what we should strive for, is patience and kindness and humility and, you know, courtesy and all these things that Paul is describing when he describes love. And still, I think what is true of most churches that I've been a part of anyway is is, um, there's this veneer of spiritual commitment Right? Of, of really being on fire for Jesus or whatever you want to say. Or there's growth, there's activity, but underneath it, everybody's mad at one another and there's deep division and hurt feelings and all this kind of stuff. Paul says it can't be that way. It shouldn't be true of the church and it shouldn't be true of the church's leaders either. And so the Apostle Paul says what matters, what really matters at the end of the day is a new heart. And so in 1 Timothy 3, if you come to that passage with me, we get a picture of what this new heart looks like in the form of Paul's qualifications for those who would be elders. Now, I need to give you two, just two, um, two warnings right at the beginning. Two warnings as we look at this, because we can really, really mess this up when we think about this list of qualifications. And the first is, is be careful of lists. Always be careful of lists that try to really, you know, easily characterize who's in and who's out. You with me? Very dangerous. And so we, we can't dogmatically or rigidly apply these qualifications. If, if we did, it would, I would be disqualified immediately. I might as well pack my bags. And unfortunately, none of you would be qualified either, so we might as well just close the doors. Right? And so they're a summary description of a certain kind of person. And I'm going to kind of bring us up out of the details to really get behind this a little bit. And then secondly, I want you to see... This is, this is fascinating to me, but as Paul lists the qualification for pastors, there, there's only one qualification that is a competency. Do you see that? Only one of the 15 or 16 here is a competency. The rest deal with character. And yet, I would say, this is how backwards we have it. When we, when we um, interview pastors, what is the first thing we have them do? Preach. Because obviously, the most important thing a pastor does is Preach. And if he, if, if he preaches well, who cares if he's abusive to his wife and kids? I mean, I've never been a part of an interview process where a pastor comes into town and they say, you know what, we don't really care how you preach. We want to see you spend time with your wife and children. And Paul says, you know, so one qualification is a competency. The rest deal with character. Paul says, if you'll notice there, they have to be able to teach. They have to be able to teach. And that makes sense due to their assignment that they are those who 
really lead out in the word ministry of the church. So they have to have the ability to teach. But the rest deal with character. And then so let's let's do some just kind of a quick run through of this so that you can be thoroughly unsatisfied with how well I deal with all of the issues that are really controversial here. And I want to just say it this way. I think if we could sum up the teaching that Paul makes about those that are aspiring to the office of elder, it would be just this, that elders need to be strong leaders and they need to be servant leaders. Strong leaders and servant leaders. That's kind of what he's getting at. So they lead through vision and discipline in the church, and so the Scripture tells the church to highly esteem them and obey them. So Paul is listing, he's, he's describing first the kind of person who's worthy of being followed, worthy of being obeyed. Obeyed. He says, if you look there, the first one, that they must be above reproach. Well, dang, I'm right out of the gates, I'm disqualified. Above reproach, and that word means to not be able to lay hold of. It means to be above criticism. And of course, of course it doesn't mean without sin, but a general, it's a general characteristic of a man who is deeply committed to Christ and has a good reputation. They must be sober-minded and self-controlled, Paul says. Both those words obviously refer to a person's restraint, his ability to rein in his desires and keep them in check and live moderately and not in excess. Sober-minded, to be serious, to feel the weight of the responsibility and to act accordingly, right? That's what that means. He goes on, respectable. They must be respectable. That word just means attractive. It refers to the kind of person that when you look at their lives, you think, I want to be like that person. Not a drunkard. Uh, an obvious issue of self-control, and I'm a teetotaler, so no big deal there. Jonathan's another... No, I'm just kidding. That's not nice. <laughs> if you want to know how to micro-brew your own beer, you can ask Jonathan later. He can tell you how to do that. <laughs> Sorry, that was mean. I shouldn't have even gone there. <laughs> I feel like I get it from him all the time, so... Yeah. But an obvious issue of self-control and a lack of good judgment and character... Uh, not a lover of money. Now, this one really, <clears throat> this one comes home a lot more to me. In other words, an elder should be concerned for his people and his care, not for his own selfish or personal gain. So you see all these, a strong leader. He's got to be the kind of person that can lead and that people will follow. But not only that, but those who aspire to be elders are to be servant leaders, and therefore they're required to exhibit a fundamental humility. I mean, remember what Jesus said about the rulers of the Gentiles, that they lorded over their subjects, but in the kingdom of heaven, he says, if you want to become a leader, you must become servant. And so those that are called to this office have to be humble. And if you notice there, even in verse 6, Paul disqualifies a new convert because he realizes that somebody new to the faith might use, you know, if you put them on a pedestal, they might use that to be tempted to pride, to start thinking, man, I'm a leader. I'm important. I've made it. I'm somebody special and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Right? What did the devil do? The devil was not content to be ruled by God. He wanted God's throne. He, he was this pursuit of ascendancy to become something great. And Paul says, be careful. And so this is where we've just got to start thinking differently about the kind of people who make great leaders. Not only, not only the most successful, the most influential, the smartest, or the most committed or qualified, but as we think about nominating elders, we should probably be asking, who's the most humble? Who lives in poverty of spirit? You know? This is my favorite. Who's sinned so boldly in their life that they live with a broken heart and with overriding joy at being forgiven? That's the kind of person in whom the gospel is really taking root. It's pervasive humility. And that kind of person, you look here, verse 2, will be hospitable. 
It's a great word, that word hospitable. And it's interesting. Isn't it interesting that that's one of the characteristics? Hospitable. It means a lover of the stranger. It describes a person who receives people who are different than themselves without passing judgment on them. It describes a person who's approachable, who gives people access without making demands. Paul goes on, they'll not be violent. Literally not a striker. This person won't lash out in anger. He won't be overbearing. He won't be mean. He won't impose his will upon other people. Instead, he'll be gentle. Do you see that? He'll be soft with other people, patient with them in their sins and weaknesses, compassionate and kind. And this is my favorite. This is so my favorite. And because, because pastors are the most quarrelsome people I've ever met in my entire life, and yet Paul says they must not be quarrelsome. Pastors love arguments. Do you know that about us? We love to argue. And yet Paul says an elder must not be the kind of person who has to be right. Not the kind of person who has to get the last word in. But the person, you know, that's just arrogance. And Paul says the person he's describing would be possessed of a gentle and quiet spirit. So elders are to be strong and courageous and full of faith. Strong leaders, but also humble and easy to approach. Gentle, servant leaders. And really we're used to leaders that are either one or the other. Do you see that? We're really used to people that are either one or the other. So you have on this side the strong leader who really just mandates everything from one high and he just, he just, you know, looks down on everybody else and gets his way and just kind of plows ahead and knocks people over as he goes along. Or the really sweet and kind of kind, gentle person who is really just a pushover. But you see, if the leader is strong but not humble, then he's a jerk. That's, that's the technical biblical word. <laughs> right? But if he's gentle but not strong, he's a pushover and he can't get the work done. So Paul says elders have to be both. If either of these are missing, they're disqualified because it's an indication that the gospel's not yet penetrated into their hearts. Because a heart supernaturally changed by the gospel is both strong and courageous and also humble and gentle at the same time. It's a unique combination. Most of us naturally are either strong or humble. Hardly anybody is both. And that, that I think is what Paul's getting at. That is the distinguishing character of leadership in the church. It's so unique that it has to be tested. And so Paul gives us two tests uh, by which we can really examine the people that we are calling into leadership. And this is where it gets really, this is just where it gets really scary because the first test is marriage. If you look there in verse 2 of First Timothy 3, Paul says that an elder must be the husband of one wife. Now what in the world does that mean? I'm not going to get into all the details because we just don't have the time. And, and really, it's, we're so uncertain that all we would be doing is speculating about things that we really probably can't reach agreement about anyway. But three major opinions are, first, that Paul must be dealing with polygamy. In other words, polygamy was active in the church. And so Paul's saying a polygamist should not be in the office of overseer, which I understand because to have more than one wife, how would you have time to do anything other than care for all those ladies? <laughs> I mean, gosh, Right? So maybe, I don't know. Amen. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> Secondly, the second kind of thinking is, is that it must refer to divorce. So a man who's been divorced would be disqualified. And that's just nice and clean and easy and neat. The problem is, is that, that divorce is not necessarily always a sin. Sometimes it's justifiable. So again, so there's, you got to really get your hands dirty in this thing. And then thirdly, uh, most kind of the general, the, the most obvious one is that that somehow Paul's referring to something like a one-woman kind of man, that he would be committed and faithful in his current marriage. And I'm going to completely avoid the controversy and just say that I think the force of the language is not really on the man's marital status, but on his character, as it plays itself out 
in his married and in his marriage. And if you're married, then, you know, you know this. What relationship in your life is the first test of your character? It's your marriage. So as the church is considering elders, the first thing that should be looked at is his marriage. Is he a strong leader in his marriage? Is he courageous enough to correct his wife when she's wrong? Because you are sometimes, ladies. And so are we. Right? And so we need you to be strong with us, too. But is this man strong? Can he correct when she's wrong? Is he a servant leader? Does he receive correction from her? Is he gentle and patient with her in her sins and weaknesses? You see, if there are troubles in marriage, it doesn't necessarily disqualify this person from leadership, but at the very least offers a caution. The, bride, the church, you remember in the scripture, is the bride of Christ, and he wants men to shepherd his bride who have proven themselves in the way they love and shepherd their brides. And then secondly, the second test is his children. So verses 5 and 6, Paul says elders must manage their households well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. I, I heard rumblings in some of your community groups last week about Titus saying an elder's children must be believers and not open to the charge of insubordination. And again, remember, these qualifications are not meant to be generally or dogmatically applied. In every case, there's a story that involves thousands of details that are important and applicable. But what Paul's saying is that there's something about the task of eldering that is like fathering. Fathers lead and shepherd their children. Elders lead and shepherd churches. They're very similar jobs. And if a man has been unfaithful with his children then it wouldn't be wise to put him in place of leadership over the church. Has he consistently corrected his children and disciplined them? Right? Is he strong? But is he a servant? Is he gentle and approachable? Does he have the hearts of his children? Do they know that he's for them and that he loves them? Does he show them that by serving them? These are the concerns Paul has. Strong leaders, servant leaders. See, that's the kind of man Paul says should be shepherding the church. And, the, and what's hard about that is you hardly ever meet that kind of person. And so we need to end our time this morning by just asking a quick question. Then how do you become the kind of person Paul's describing? How do, you, how, do you, how do you become both courageous and strong and gentle and humble at the same time? And here's how. And this is just the end. You have to meet love. Go back up to 1 Corinthians 13. You have to meet love as a power and a person. Now notice what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 13. He doesn't say, I want you to be patient Shame, shame, shame. You should be kind. You really shouldn't boast. He doesn't do that, does he? What does he do? He personifies love. Instead of saying, this is what I want you to be, he gives us a picture of an active personal force called love that is living in a certain way. He says, love is patient. And the reason Paul does this is because the way you learn to love is not to try hard. Love isn't something you do. It's a power that you have to experience that comes into your life and changes you. And we know this. From the way small children come out of the womb, if you take an infant and you put it in an environment where nobody ever picks it up and talks to it and shows it affection, then that child, it's been proven, will grow up and will not be able to either give or receive love. It will be emotionally disabled for the rest of its life. Why? In some cases, the children will even die. Why? Because we learn to love by being loved. The only way to get a supernaturally changed heart is to have a powerful experience of love, to meet with love, to meet with a love that can overcome all of our sins and failures and regrets, to be embraced by love, to be flooded with love, to have the empty places deep inside of us filled by love. Love's not something you do. It's not a set of guidelines that you pick up and breathe life into. It's something that comes into you and breathes life into you. 
So Paul wants us to see it as a power, but also to see it as a person, and it can't be. It can't be that Paul is meaning for this to be a description of a perfectly loving person. That would just crush us. Because none of us could ever hope to measure up to this description. It has to be that Paul was thinking of a person. And so when he says love is patient, love suffers long. He had to be thinking of the one who cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, that's infinite suffering. And when he wrote, Love keeps no record of wrong, he had to be thinking of Jesus when he prayed for those who nailed his hands and feet to the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And when he wrote, love endures all things, he had to be thinking of Jesus' prayer on the cross with his last breath. It is finished. I've done it. And when he wrote, love never fails. Love never ends. There's only one person he could have been thinking about. Because only Jesus has died and ransacked hell and come back from the dead to save us. Every other love comes to an end, but his love survives even death. And you see, this is just the way it works. The more we see Jesus on the cross taking our sins upon himself so that we could have his righteousness facing the wrath of God that was due to us, the more we really come to believe that, the more we take it in, the more we meet with that love, the more we think about it, the more we taste it on our lips, then here's what happens. As you center your life on the gospel, more and more it will make you strong. Because what does the gospel tell you? It tells you God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? God is for you. Jesus' death has taken away the wrath of God toward you. So he's for you. Then don't be afraid of making a mistake. You hear me? Don't be afraid of making a mistake because he's already proven he can work through your mistakes and your sin to rescue you. And we are completely free to fail. Amen? I mean... We are completely free to fail because our identity is not wrapped up in being a success. We don't have to be right. We don't have to succeed. And again, strong, strength. You'll be able to correct and discipline and rebuke people who you're leading, your kids or the elders in the church, to the church. Not being afraid of their disapproval because God is for you. They don't have to be for you. God's for you and that means you can really be for them. And you can give them what they need. Stop trying to protect yourself. So it makes you strong, you see, all these ways. But then as you center your life on the gospel, the more and more it will make you humble. It will make you a servant too. Because God is for you, but remember, not because you're talented or committed or at the top of the pyramid. <laughs> the Bible says that when we were sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so the more you know that, the more you center your life on that, that that even though you blew it, the love of God is yours in Jesus, then it makes you gentle, especially as you correct and rebuke, because you're doing it as one sinner to another. It'll keep you from thinking too highly of yourself, right? Taking yourself too seriously, thinking you're above certain things, being motivated by making a name for yourself. If you're a leader, whether it's a parent or, you know, a husband or a boss or whatever, it will make you stop thinking so much about yourself and trying to serve your own agenda, and it will help you start to serve other people. See, the gospel comes home. The gospel is the only thing that can come into your life and make you the kind of person Paul describes. And so the people that, we're being, that we are calling into leadership have to be people who are not just talented and not just morally committed, but people who have experienced love as a power in a person and who have had their lives changed through that experience. And the way you know how is that person is both strong and a servant at the same time. That's what Paul's describing. So what the Bible is saying is, as we apply this to our life as a church, find men who have experienced love like that. 
and let them lead you because that experience is what we all need. I mean, only people who've experienced love like that can lead you to the same experience. Only people who know love, the love of God for us in Christ Jesus and have been flipped upside down and had hearts transformed by it can bring that love to other people. Look for those guys who are both strong and servant. And let them lead you. Because that's, because that's what's the most crucial, most central thing in the church. Not that we're talented people, not that we're committed, but that we have new hearts. That we've been changed by the Spirit of God as we rejoice in the gospel. So let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, um, we need to meet you. We need to meet with you. Um, because that's the only way for us to get hearts uh, like the heart described for us in these, in these pages and in these lines. And so would you come... And do just that. Would you meet with us? Uh, as we sing this song, would you remind us of what we read in, in Titus just a, a little while ago in our call to worship, or our assurance of pardon, that we, are, that we are saved, that we have all of the riches of God in Christ Jesus, that we have everything we need for life and godliness, that we have an inheritance that is awaiting us in heaven, uh, that you are for us. And who could be against us if you were for us? But all of that is not of our own making We are powerless to accomplish any of that for ourselves. It is only through the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us and saves us, that we can claim any of those things to be true. And so as we sing this song, I pray for those here this morning that are weak and beaten up by by their sin, that you would would lift them up out of their, their sadness and their sorrow and bring them great joy and secure them in the love that you have for them. But for those of us who come, and quite honestly, we're prideful, and arrogant and boastful. I pray that as we sing these words, that it would just destroy and crumble our self-righteousness and, and, and make us humble, that we would cry out, Lord Jesus, I cannot save myself, only you can save me. Would you produce that in us, that kind of character? And would you raise up men in our midst with that kind of character to lead us so that that, will, that would be what we would be known for in our city, that you would bear fruit through us. And we pray these things for your glory. Amen. Jesus has spilt his blood in the place where ours should be spilt, and that means we have no cause to ever be in despair. Uh, If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you put your faith in him, then God is for you. Uh, And you have no reason to despair, but neither do you have reason to put confidence in your own flesh and ever be um, self-righteous or or arrogant. And so, if if you find yourself moving into despair, then there's cause for you to repent and come back and listen to the promise of that scripture. If you find yourself... Uh, just just boastful and prideful and f- just full of your own the sense of your own righteousness, then repent and come back to the truth of the gospel that Jesus is a savior of sinners, that he shed his blood in our place. And so no matter where you are, whether you find yourself needing to be raised up out of your despair or brought down out of your arrogance, then this benediction is for you. And feast on the promise of God in these words. It may have produced in all of us uh, the kind of strength and the kind of servant heart that we so desperately need to fulfill the mission Jesus has called us to in our city. So, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.